This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. In a long-awaited decision, the Supreme Court has ruled that Harvard University and the University of North Carolina are both in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment by giving racial preferences to African Americans and Hispanic Americans they have contravened the fundamental principle of equal protection before the law. According to the Supreme Court, the Constitution is colorblind, just as Justice Harlan said many years ago in the infamous Plessy v. Ferguson case from which he dissented. So why did they decide to do that instead of just saying they had a diversity exception to this uh, basic principle? And uh, that's sort of the curiosity in the uh, decision that the Supreme Court handed down. They very firmly uh, uh, enunciated a colorblind constitution doctrine. So to discuss this topic, I have with me a longtime court watcher, Josh Dunn, who's the executive director of the Institute of American Civics at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So, Josh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. First of all, let's look at Robert's opinion. He has a number of reasons why he says this is violating the Constitution. What were the, I think he has three main points that he makes. What were the three main considerations that led him to the conclusion, this doesn't pass muster? Yeah, so I, I think the main points were one that both the the means for trying to achieve diversity uh, and the goal itself were inherently nebulous and not measurable. He starts off with that. Uh, so the, the the means weren't weren't nearly tailored, and the goal itself they couldn't define. And he said, if you're going to carve out an exception to strict scrutiny, which racial classifications always receive strict scrutiny. You, you have to have something that the court can really sink its teeth into, that they have to be able to know exactly what it is and what you're and how you're doing is advancing it. And they said, looking at both of those things with Harvard and UNC, it's it's impo it's impossible to actually measure. So some of these goals sound really la laudable, uh, but, but we don't know exactly what they are. I think um, some of those goals, I, I recall reading the case. Uh, some of the goals that Harvard said they were pursuing was training national leaders and they were going to, uh, I don't know, create greater sensitivity across diff different groups. So do you, do you remember all those goals they had? Yes, they, they gave a, very, a kind of a laundry list of, of goals. And one of the things Robert said is, well, well, that actually isn't related to the exception that we created before, this narrow, this narrow exception for, for diversity itself. So they were just kind of adding on uh, 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 to, to this um, diversity argument. And so he said, again, all of these things sound wonderful, uh, but that doesn't mean that they are, can be an exception uh, to, uh, to strict scrutiny. Uh, and also, even if they, you could imagine them being an exception to strict scrutiny, for the court to evaluate it, there, there has to be something concrete uh, that they can actually see whether or not you're actually achie uh, achieving it. And Harvard couldn't provide any of that information about how they're actually doing this. It doesn't even have a president. You know, you know, it used to have <laughs> and uh, <laughs> FDR and Teddy Roosevelt, but you know, not not even right. the president they could point to. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, he also pointed to the fact that race could never be used as a negative factor. 
when evaluating people. And he said that the way that Harvard and UNC were using race, it was clear to the court, to the majority, that race was used in a negative way. What's interesting about that is, of course, that if if that that was the requirement, he said that's always been the requirement with college admissions since they're a zero sum game. Uh, it's not clear how they could have ever been just a positive factor. That is, if one student gets in uh, because of a, a, a racial category, that means another student probably isn't getting in uh, because they, they lack that racial characteristic. Um, but he said it's, it's pretty clear that, that, that this is being used in a, in a negative way, particularly with Asian students. I mean, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the obvious category of applicants who, who are being harmed because, because of their race. So it wasn't just a plus factor, it was a minus factor uh, in the way that the, the, the universities were using it. So that was, the, that was the second. And then the third argument, and this is one I think really annoyed some of the justices, uh, was that neither Harvard or UNC could even speculate about when their affirmative action programs might end. Uh, and the court said, look, back in Grutter versus Bollinger, we gave you 25 years. We said that ho hopefully within 25 years, this will this will all, all won't, won't be necessary anymore. And you can be wrapping things up. And they said so a couple of the conservative justices who joined the majority at or oral argument, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh said, when do you think if, if five years from now, which would be the, the 25 year endpoint, um, if that's not enough, uh, when what would be enough time? And they basically said, we have no idea. And and the attitude was almost like, look, this is we 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 you shouldn't even be asking us this question. And so I think for some of the justices, the, the posture of the, the university seemed to be don't call us, we'll call you. Uh, and if you're the Supreme Court, they aren't going to take kindly to that. <laughs> um, you know, they have this case where there's alleged racial discrimination. Racial discrimination is always given the highest level of scrutiny. You better be able to articulate uh, something that would satisfy some of the, some of those justices. So I think it was a strategic blunder on the part of Harvard and UNC and their attorneys to not even at least throw out a potential date. If it's not five years, maybe 10 years. Um, because again, you don't know what might happen in 10 years either. The composition of the court could change. They could have a different view uh, towards affirmative action. Uh, you can live to fight another day, but uh, they, they, they wouldn't even countenance uh, a, a possible end date. So you think they lost maybe two votes on that? Potentially. It was going to be tough, but I think that was the narrow window that they had. And they, they didn't even try to go. Well, they might have had a 10 percent no. chance. But, but now, could they have done that? It seems to me that from a political point of view, if Harvard had made that case, there would have been an yeah. uprising on the campus. Students would have uh, stormed uh, uh, University Hall. The faculty <laughs> would have asked the president to right. resign. Uh, I don't think they could possibly have made that. That might be the case. It and you're there, so you you, have, you might have better sense of whether or not that would have would have happened. But I, I also think maybe the administration could have given a wink and a nod to the students and say, "Hey, you know, look, we just have to deal with the political facts on the ground with the court, and uh, you know, bear with us on this. We're just trying to we're we're just trying to, to 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 win right now and see if that might mean that we could win win in the future." But you're probably right that it would have created a huge uproar, particularly at Harvard, maybe not at UNC, but certain. You know, Harvard seems yeah, more likely. So um, now in the dissent, Justice Sotomayor, Mayor Sotomayor, uh, uh, she says in dissent, and she's got two colleagues with her, 
uh, Jackson and Kagan. Uh, and, and they say that the majority really is uh, not following precedent, that actually we've got very significant precedents out there, the Fisher case, the Gruder case, the Bakke case, all of which said that this was, you know, you, you could do this uh, if, for, for purposes of diversity on the campus. And now you're departing from that and you're just making up law. Yeah, so um, I, I think the I, I think it's all how you evaluate the, this time frame that the court had established in Grutter. And even earlier, though, they had indicated that they wanted there to be an endpoint to this. You know, go, going back to Baki, that this would be a kind of a temporary um, solution to the problem, but it wouldn't be go on in in, per, in perpetuity. And so then the question is, well, how do you how do you evaluate uh, how do you evaluate that? Uh, and you know, uh, I, I, if if you're a supporter of uh, of affirmative action and providing preferences in the admissions process, then you're probably going to read those precedents, and particularly um, the the Gruder decision one way, and the majority read it another. <laughs> Look, this is a uh, the majority read it as this is a really unusual exception. Racial classifications are almost always struck down. So what's unusual is that we allowed this to happen in the first place. Um, and since it, for the majority, since it was such a departure from the general rule, uh, they want to put limits on it. And the dissenter said, well, no, you, yeah, you're kind of pulling the rug out from under them. And after all, we had this, the Fisher case from just a few years ago. Of course, that was a four to three case. <laughs> you didn't have a full comp complement of justices. Um, and so now that you've We've got uh, nine justices back on the court. Um, you know, uh, it, it's not surprising that the three justices who dissented in Fisher uh, were going to have the same position this time around. Uh, and then you had a couple more justices, and it's unclear that a justice should be bound by what they might regard as the unconstitutional decisions of past courts. I found it interesting that uh, Justice Thomas was in agreement with the three dissenters when he, he said, Finally, we are throwing Bruder out the window. We're throwing fish. Yeah. I was against those in the first place. Hurrah. He was quite willing to say we changed our minds. They were wrongly decided. But the chief justice did not sort of say he was uh, overturning wrongly decided decisions, right? There was Yes. And in fact, they never officially said that they were overturning Bruder. Now, in practice, it's not, it's not clear to me that Bruder can survive. Um, after the, the, it seems to me that the, the, the reasoning of Robert's decision precludes the survival of Gruder, even without Robert's specifically coming out and saying, we are overturning uh, Gruder. Um, so, yeah, Ju Justice Thomas says, yeah, we're fine. We're basically overturning, uh, overturning Gruder here uh, and being pretty for forthright about it. Where yeah, Roberts was was not being quite quite as direct. It's again, I just don't see how how you know how it survives. But of course, Thomas, yeah, yeah, he was he was a very strong dissenter in 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 that case. Was was deeply offended by the the uh, the, the decision the, the decision in, in in Gruder. Yeah, I think that his, his posture towards the case is not surprisingly different uh, from from Roberts and a, and a few of the others uh, who were who were in the majority. So. Uh, Josh, uh, this is all uh, fascinating analysis that that you're uh, you're giving us. Uh, but isn't aren't the dissenters basically just going back to the original position that 
Harvard had to create uh, just make up for societal discrimination that is up to the university to um, to have an affirmative action program because of the racism that has persisted in society over a very long period of time. Uh, in a concurring opinion, Justice uh, Jackson really makes this very forceful. He goes into slavery, right. segregation, the inheritance of wealth over time, and uh, all of the, how slavery accumulates over time to create a problem down to the contemporary society. And that's why this decision, that's why the affirmative action is necessary. That's why it must be sustained. Yeah, the, the, pro the problem though, is that that position had been rejected in Bakke. <laughs> so if you go back to the original case involving affirmative action, uh, a majority of the court said that uh, that could not be used as a justification uh, for, for affirmative action, that is to remedy the effects of past discrimination and, and racism. And instead, you end up, of course, with this control, kind of controlling concurring opinion by Justice Powell and Bakke, which uh, uses the argument of diversity, which he, he really took from the briefs provided by, uh, by Harvard. Uh, but the, interestingly, they were, the dissenters on the left in Bakke uh, really disliked the diversity arguments. <laughs> um, they did not, they, ra they would have rather, uh, the court just said, Yes, we need affirmative action to, to remedy the defects uh, uh, of past discrimination uh, that persist with, with us today. Uh, but that position has never was never adopted by was never adopted by the court. So you're right; that is kind of the argument. But it's a it's an argument that the court had ne never accepted. A majority of the court had never accepted, and it really would have required something truly significant uh, to get a majority of the court to to agree with Justice Jackson's position. Uh, that this is the primary reason that we need to, that we need to keep keep these programs. So there's the table. I call it the infamous table or the famous table, depending on the point of view you have. I don't see many tables in court opinions. Maybe you've read a lot more court opinions than I have. But I, what struck me was here is a social science table in the court opinion, and it, yeah, it, at the percentage of uh, African-Americans, white Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic American, and uh, over a number of years, what, how has the percentage changed from one year to the next? Uh, so um, how, uh, I, found, I found that an amazing part of the decision. What was the point that Roberts was making with that table? Yeah, I think he was just trying to provide a, a visual depiction of what what he regards as the discrimination that Harvard uh, was engaging in, um, and that universities overall that adopt these programs are in, engaging in, and to just show that this is what this is what has consistently happened over time. It doesn't really deviate. This is systematic, and that also goes back to some of the debate in the Grotz and Gruder decisions, because one of the things that the, in striking down the undergraduate affirmative action. Uh, program at the University of Michigan was that uh, it was too systematic uh, and kind of mechanical. And then the dissenters in the Gruder decision said, look, something actually similar is going on it, with the law school as well, because you end up with the same percentages. So even though they say they're providing a holistic review, it's really something systematic, which is, has been foreclosed by the Bakke decision. Uh, and these percentages just just show that they have a target in mind and they're going to reach that target <laughs> no, no matter what, because there's just not much, much, much deviation. And so 
I think it's trying to show that even though Harvard is claiming it has a fairly holistic admissions process, it's not really uh, holistic in that sense. And it's something that actually offends these prior precedents that you can't uh, that you can't engage with a program that kind of automatically leads to something that looks like quotas. So I think in the African-American cases, 11% of the population is, is African-American. So we're going to have 11% of the class African-American. And they did that year after year after year with maybe one year, yep. 10%, another year, 10%. But basically, right. it roughly right yeah. around that. It sounds like a quota system. They, it, it, isn't that sort of what Robert's saying? Is this, this is just tantamount to a quota, which was ruled yes. unconstitutional yes. from the yeah. get-go? Yeah, it's it's quota. For, I think for the majority, it's quotas masquerading as a holistic uh, review. Uh, that's I, I think that, and that that's what the the table is 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 supposed to supposed to show to the to the reader. But Justice Sotomayor just took after that. She said this table was misleading and uh, was misinterpreted. So what was her argument? Yeah. So um, yeah, I I think you know. For, for Sotomayor and then many of the opponents of the decision, what they, they have consistently argued is that the trial court did not find that there was uh, kind of systematic discrimination against, uh, against Asian students. And because trial courts are the triers of fact, then we are not allowed to actually second guess them. Uh, appellate courts are not supposed to be able to uh, se uh, second guess them. But I'd have to go back and look at Sotomayor's opinion uh, again. But my my recollection after going going through it is that that's part that's part of her uh, argument is this uh, significant evidentiary record based on the trial court proceedings, uh, where the trial court and the the, the federal judge uh, said that there there was no no real. Uh, discrimination going on that it was never race was never used as a negative and so when you just put this this um, table out there uh, it it looks like something that the trial court said was not actually going on uh, it looks like something it's doing something that the trial court said it was not actually occurring well yes uh, that was part of her point I think the other part of her point was well the applicant pool was about the same distribution. So if you randomly select oh, yes, yeah. uh, out right. of the pool, you'd get the same pattern. Right, right. Um, but then, of course, um, the the applicant pool. I, of course, for the majority, they said the applicant all things aren't equal with the applicant pool. Um, and <laughs> there's a well look at uh, look look at this the the SAT scores that your average a Asian student has to have in order to get it, get admitted versus uh, those of, of other races. And of course, one of the interesting things about this is not clear that the decision is going to have that much effect on the white student population at Harvard. Um, that it, it's re this really primarily affects uh, a Asian students. <laughs> it doesn't look like there's going to be a dramatic change in the percentage of white students um, being being admitted to Harvard as as a result of this, if the focus does shift to what the court seems to want to to focus on these more objective measures, um, you know, test scores um, and and so forth. Although the court did say, of course, you can take into account other obstacles that students have have faced, but it has to be tied to something not based solely on race. Um, so, have they demonstrated perseverance and 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 so forth? So, uh, yeah, let's talk about the white students, because um, 
you know, a lot of those white students that get in are legacy kids or children. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they're faculty brats, I call them. But my kids didn't go to Harvard, so yeah. I'm safe. Right. Okay. So a lot of these, a lot of these uh, privileged kids are faculty brats, but even a higher percentage are alumni, uh, grandchildren, or children, or or big donors. Also, that mm -hmm. got a break. Uh, uh, now there's a case or a, a, a complaint filed with the U.S. Department of Education by three civil rights groups coming out of uh, New England here, where they're saying. Well, um, Harvard is uh, discriminating uh, against uh, minority groups because of their legacy policy and their legacy policy is having a disproportionate uh, effect uh, and uh, is admitting many more white students than you would admit if you didn't have that legacy policy. So is this going to, are leg is legacy admissions at risk? Uh, potentially, yeah. I, I think the difficulty is that uh, the the complaints have to use legacy as a kind of proxy for race, and so the argument is that there's a disparate impact based on race because uh, these the the legacies who are admitted are more likely to be white. Um, that's that, so. So that's so so that, that's the argument. In the law, though, it's not clear that this has ever been. Um, even though there can be all sorts of educational reasons that this might not be a good idea. Um, it, it's, this hasn't been a suspect classification all right, under, under the law. And so, uh, yeah, they, they might, I, I think, there's a, I think they, they, they have a fighting chance of, of having some success with this. I think one question though, is if you got rid of legacy admissions, would it actually act, change the overall composition uh, of the student body, because it could be that it just means that uh, legacy admits don't get in who happen to be white, but it also might mean that if you get rid of that, then there might just be other white students that take their place. Uh, so it might not end up changing what the, the overall percentages in, 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 in the student body. Um, yeah, but what effect would it have on so, endowment? The endowment is only 51 billion. Oh, yeah, oh, it be, would oh, be brutal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for Harvard, obviously, this would be a huge hit because this is part of the way you know, Harvard has, of course, the largest endowment in the world for an educational institution. And uh, I, I'm pretty certain no, like Princeton or Yale haven't surpassed Harvard. Um, and it's through admitted, admitting legacy students, um, the offspring of uh, of alums who have done well in life um, and then have donated um, that Harvard that's been a, a, one of the primary ways Harvard Harvard has built its endowment and that, that allows Harvard to do many other things of course um, and that, I would say that's a one one a, a, another interesting implication of this decision which is that um, yeah, the, for Harvard this is really driven by the the, the Title VI analysis, which really follows the equal protection analysis. But if Harvard really wanted to, uh, its endowment is large enough that it could forego federal funding. <laughs> it could, it, it would hurt, but Harvard might be one of the few institutions in the country um, that could do this uh, and, ca and carry on. Um, so, but of course, I don't, I don't envision Harvard doing this at all. That medical school needs yeah. oh, yeah. the National Institutes of Health. 
<laughs> oh yeah, all the federal grants and all the that was, but Harvard could still make a go of it, right? <laughs> you could imagine it could, uh, yeah, it, you know, it would have some bite. Um, but given the size of its endowment, it, uh, it, it, it really, it really could. Um, but um, yeah, so for Harvard, I mean, this is uh, this is crucial for being able to create the kind of institution that it wants to create. Um, and so, yeah, the legacy admits that would that that that, that would hurt. That would hurt. So in some ways, legacy admits and affirmative action have a connection. You can't have, you can't have one without the other maybe. So is this gonna be a problem? I'm not speaking about Harvard in particular. I'm talking about elite yeah. universities that have great fundraising capacities. Uh, have they, are these two, is this part of a broader university strategy? For uh, you know, positioning themselves as a as a major institution in society. Yes, I mean, and that, you know, and that, and that was part of Harvard's argument for affirmative action. It, you go back to the Gratz and Gruder decisions. Well, that was part of Michigan's arguments. We're trying to be an elite uh, elite institution. In order to to do that, we have to have to have a, a certain kind of uh, racial mix in in, in the student in, in in the student body. And I, I think that's also going to be part of Harvard's defense of itself with the legacy admits is that uh, this is also part of how we have built an, a, an elite institution that persists over time from one generation to the next. You have to create these kinds of attachments in order to then generate the financial donations, which then allow us to keep doing all of the, the wonderful things that, that, that we're doing. Um, so yes, it's they they do kind of go together, but legally, I'm still not convinced uh, that the federal courts are going to say yes. Uh, legacy admits can be used. There's kind of a disparate impacts analysis that will go on, and that this then harms minority students because of the uh, the, the legacy admits. I I don't I don't know that the Supreme Court, as it's currently composed, would would want to want to issue that kind of ruling. Um, that they would say without clear justification under the constitution. And it's not, I don't think it's there on the legacy admits aren't a suspect class or anything under the 14th amendment and under the civil rights acts, it's not included. Um, I, I just don't know that the justices would want to um, meddle with Harvard's, uh, Harvard's policies on that. So, uh, you know, this will end up in court right now. It's just, it's, it's just a, uh, what an office for civil rights investigation in the department of education. Right, um, right. Yeah. Let, yeah. let me ask, change the topic a little here and ask you, uh, what's the impact on the court itself of not only this decision, but of the, you know, the, com the combined set of decisions over the last couple of years that which are generated a lot of controversy? What's your right. assessment of, of uh, Chief Justice Roberts? Has he succeeded in what he's trying to do, which is in part to preserve the institution that he's responsible for, and in part to uh, set the policies in a direction that he believes in. So, what do you, what do you think is uh, how how do you assess his success in achieving his uh, complex goals? Right. So, if the goal was just to remove keep the court kind of out of political conflict, um, and make the court not the focus of uh, of partisan politics, 
I actually think it's going to be mixed as a result of the, what I, I think are the two most significant decisions of the last uh, two years, or at least politically salient decisions of the last two years, the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade and then SF, SFFA uh, versus Harvard uh, getting rid of affirmative action in admissions. So the reason I think it's mixed is that I think there is some evidence uh, that in the midterm elections, the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs uh, hurt Republicans um, in some places. I don't think it, is as, it was as significant as some people said, but I think there's evidence that there were some, some cases in some kind of swing districts uh, and maybe a few others where the Dobbs decision really did affect how, how the outcome and who, who, who ended up getting elected. And so that means that this is going to be something that particularly Democrats are going to push on going into uh, 2024. Uh, but the reason I think it's mixed is that affirmative action isn't nearly as politically, well, I would say it's politically unpopular. Um, yeah, uh, it's the, the polling on it shows that it's not necessarily a winner for, for the Democratic Party in the way that the Dobbs decision could be um, uh, a real a real boon to the Democratic Party party, at least in some in some parts of the country, because uh, if you look at the polling on affirmative action, you, you get pr- pr- consistently uh, majority of Americans oppose it, even close to a majority of African-Americans oppose it, according to some polls, and maybe even some show show a slight majority uh, oppose it. So I think Democrats won't be nearly as successful uh, using the SFFA versus Harvard um, uh, to try to make the court the a central feature of the 2024 presidential election and congressional elections. So it's kind of mixed. Uh, now, I think the broader issue, though, is should this be the chief justice's goal? <laughs> uh, because it's, it is clear that, that he, he has tried to protect the court and, and views it as part of his, his, his role as chief justice uh, to protect it as an institution. Uh, and there, I mean, part of the criticisms of Roberts, particularly coming from, from the right, is that he has sacrificed fidelity to the Constitution uh, with this broader goal of protecting the institution. And you can kind of see that approach with his concurring opinion in the Dobbs decision, where he said, well, yes, we should have upheld Mississippi's law, but we shouldn't have just completely struck down Roe. Uh, this was the more uh, minimalist approach. Uh, and so it's moving towards this it, ultimate outcome. But the majority, is, of course, the majority in that decision says we're just going to be arbitrary, arbitrarily drawing lines here. Once you get rid of viability um, and move past that, which Mississippi had done, then then it's all just going to be just judges making stuff up. And so then we have to treat Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade on their own terms. They said, look, they just don't. Uh, None, neither is justifiable uh, uh, under the un, under the Constitution for uh, for them. So I I think you have to evaluate him in both res, uh, his respects, both what his goals are to try to protect the institution, uh, but then also the the obligation that judges have to try to get the Constitution right. Um, and by the way, this of course goes. You, you can see this fissure even emerging on the court. Uh, going back to the Obamacare case, where apparently the chief justice initially voted to overturn Obamacare, but then wrote this uh, controlling opinion that upheld it under the taxing power. Uh, and 
apparently that's also created some long-term um, distrust uh, uh, on, on the court um, towards some of the justices who were there for that decision and are, and, and are, are, are still there now. At least that's what um, you know, some of the court watchers seem to think. Well, listen, all of this is fascinating. We could talk about it all afternoon, uh, but thank you very much, Josh, for your insights and, and interpretations of the uh, latest uh, major decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Thanks for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. I have been speaking with Josh Dunn, Executive Director of the Institute of American Civics at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.